Our scripture reading this morning will be from a New Testament passage that helps shed light on our passage this morning from Song of Solomon. The passage is 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I rather enjoyed the spontaneous sort of wolf whistle at the end of that uh, piece. Did you hear that? That was great. Wonderful. I don't know what your um, ideal day might be like, your perfect day. There was a show that used to uh, air on NPR, National Public Radio, that I would listen to from time to time that would describe the perfect weekend of a particular celebrity. And uh, it seemed usually to include a rather fancy restaurant and an unpronounceable buffet. Uh, My ideal day, I partly jest, uh, came years ago when I was a student. I'd been working hard, exhausted, and a couple of friends noticed and insisted on taking me out for a bike ride in the snow. I was really tired, though I hadn't flown for nine and a half hours twice transatlantically, but... And uh, the bike ride in the snow was hilarious in a student sort of way. And after laughing and giggling for a while, we went back to one of their rooms and warmed ourselves by a dubious-looking electric fireplace and drunk tea and had toast and Marmite. Uh, for the uninitiated, Marmite is not chocolate spread. And uh, it may look like it, but if you put it on thick, you will die. Strong stuff, strange stuff, some would say, but then over there we are English, so that's about all you can say about that. (laughs) Now, this might not strike you as a particularly special moment, but at the time they were close friends and they spotted what I needed and provided it for me, and I loved them for that, or rather, I loved them anyway, and when they provided it, our friendship was confirmed. Now, this passage we're looking at this morning from chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1 of Song of Songs. Uh, that that also around there, is actually an ideal day. It's a uh, wedding day, probably, uh, followed by a wedding night of conjugal bliss. And I have to say, as I read it through over and over again this week, uh, it, well, it left me all feeling rather exhausted. Perhaps as a 20-year-old, it would have excited me, but now... I wonder what it means for the single person, the widow, the married, the person whose desires may not be able to be celebrated in the pages of Holy Writ. Perhaps I've been a pastor too long. I, I tend to see every passage through the eyes of the many people I have talked to over the years. 
But you see, though this is about a wedding in all likelihood, it's about much more than that. I'm going to take my first real interpretive risk with this Song of Songs book. Well, you can't preach it at all without taking a number of risks, but uh, basically I am arguing contra the fathers that it's about human love. But I'm also saying contra those who make it about how to have sex, Bible style, that love and marriage is about Christ's love for the church, Ephesians 5. This is a profound mystery, but I speak about Christ's love for the church. And by the way, that's the only wife that Jesus has. This is about that, yes? But that is about Christ's love for the church. But there is another element, and that is Solomon. You, you cannot interpret this passage without tackling Solomon, he's mentioned many times in the end of chapter 3, you can see it, verse 9. King Solomon, again, verse 11, King Solomon, he, he's a sort of hero figure here, and yet, well, what can we say about Solomon? If this book was authored by Solomon, as I think it probably was, and as is traditionally thought, we're left with a puzzle, a conundrum. What sort of man is Solomon to give advice on the right way to have a biblical marriage? Isn't this the guy who had 700 wives? It's not exactly Genesis chapter 2 template of one man, one woman for life, is it? And doesn't the Bible tell us that those wives who worshipped other gods are the ones who led him astray? And even if this book was not written by Solomon, but is in the style of Solomon or about Solomon, as the Hebrew that translates the beginning, Song of Songs of Solomon, that Hebrew will allow those uh, varieties. Uh, what then? It still leaves the specter of Solomon, if not the actual person of Solomon, hanging over it all. How could this be celebrating the love of Solomon? I suppose you could say it is ironic, but unlike that delightful Ecclesiastes, there is little of irony in the text, I think, which seems at times to be almost embarrassingly innocent. You can adopt what is called the shepherd hypothesis, which sort of makes Solomon a third party, the third wheel here, trying to take the Shulamite, the beautiful woman, away from the peasant shepherd love. But that seems to make the problem worse, not better. He's a sort of wife-stealer then. No, all in all, I think the best approach is to realize that some of this is not perfect, least of all Solomon. That, as the medieval rabbi said, Song of Songs is a book, is like a lock which has lost its key, and we know that key is Christ. So perhaps this was an early or first love after which Solomon went astray. Perhaps it's a late repentant Solomon writing it. Though to me at least there's a youthfulness to this poetry which makes it like a young man's fantasy or a young woman's and not like an old man's regret. Psalm 72, uh, by example, describes it in the 
the top of the psalm, the ascription of Solomon, it says, and yet at the end it tells us that it's the last psalm written by David. And so these, uh, the, the, these uh, uh, discussions are legitimate biblically. But you see, what I think we learn is that this wedding day, however amazing, any wedding day, however ideal, is really spoilt in this fallen world. And it's pointing to what is to come for the Christian, whether married or single, whether struggling with same-sex attraction, or struggling with other sex attraction. And I'm not saying the two are exactly the same. The lust in either case is sinful, and temptation of all kinds is common to man, even the uncommon ones, if you see what I mean. No, but as Bono uh, remarked uh, that he used to find it unnerving that the Bible had descriptions of adulterers and murderers and thieves in it, but now he finds it comforting. Yeah, it's about grace, isn't it? Think of it like this. Would you find Song of Songs as a book in any other so-called holy scripture? No, we have a Bible that describes sinners because the offense that they cause is taken at the cross. Isn't that right, friends? That even a Solomon with his 700 wives, and how many men are there here who have had 700 at least mentally? At least? See, what I want you to do is to explore briefly with me this wedding day, which I think it is, right up to the conjugal bliss with its surrealist fantasy, sort of fairy tale feel. And as we do realize that actually this is all nothing compared to saying your prayers on your knees before a holy God as a forgiven sinner. Certainly nothing compared to heaven for the saints saved by grace. It's so crucial to see this in our world that, frankly, idolizes sex. Makes that the ultimate. No, it's not. Three comparisons then. Here they are. What could be happier than a wedding first? First comparison, what could be happier than a wedding? So look down with me at chapter 3, and you'll see from verse 6 uh, through to verse 11, uh, this you know, there are many different opinions, but mine is that this seems to be a wedding procession. And chapter 11, it talks about the crown that Solomon's wearing and all this, the day of his wedding, uh, that comes at the end of the procession. We don't really know how weddings were done at the time, but uh, it seems that, as it were, the bride is walking down the aisle, uh, verse 6, sort of coming out of the desert like a column of smoke and and there's the bridegroom, uh, verse 7, strong and tall in his tuxedo, strong with his litter or his carriage. And the 60 warriors, uh, of verse 7, or his groomsmen, best man surrounding him, strong and tall as well. Yeah, it's the procession, I think, before the vows. Now, of course, weddings are wonderful, and this one was a particularly amazing wedding, at least in the somewhat surrealist fantasy of the poet. But as I say to every engaged couple, something will go wrong with your wedding. 
Can't tell you what it will be, but something will go wrong. Weddings are, it it won't be a perfect day. It's impossible. Weddings are rather complicated theater productions put on at the last moment by a troop of people who have no idea what they're doing and are likely to fluff their lines. Uh, I once had to catch the groom. Uh, He was marrying a doctor, and all her family were doctors, so I also had to stop him from getting three heart transplants and a knee replacement before (laughs) we could find him some water. What could be happier than a wedding? How about becoming a Christian? It's a form of walking down the aisle, isn't it? A step of faith. I remember the first person that I led to the Lord. I'd seen quite a number of my friends converted before at my school, but I remember the first person that I sat down with and read the Bible with in this context who wanted to become a Christian. I was 17. He was, his name was Mark. He was, he was 12. If you've never done that, there's nothing like it. How about your own conversion? Don't more angels rejoice at the sinner who needs to repent? Perhaps if you haven't done that yet, walk down the aisle, as it were, with Jesus. Maybe you will this morning. It's better than a wedding. Well, second comparison, what could be more beautiful than a bride? So look down with me. Uh, then at chapter 4 and verse 1 and onwards, and it goes really throughout the whole of this chapter, and you can see that, uh, you know, all this language, how beautiful you are, my love, how beautiful, how delightful, you know. And uh, the whole chapter is given over to a series of rather strange, to our ears at least, descriptions of the bride's beauty. And apparently scholars say this is a well-known Arabic poetic form. It's only found in the Song of Songs in the Bible, and this is its first appearance here. And this particular Arabic form of poetry has a style where it starts either from the head and works your way to the toes or from the toes and works its way to the head. Uh, though here, the biblical author delicately stops before getting to the nether regions. Uh, though what a hill of frankincense, uh, verse 6 may be, is anyone's guess and probably best left there. Uh, you can see another version of the same form of Arabic style of poetry in chapter 7, actually. And there, you see, in verse 1, it starts instead at the sandaled feet and works its way all the way up to the mouth like the best wine. All this to say that the descriptions are meant to evoke a feeling of uh, beauty, of sensuality. Though I think for most people today, they evoke uh, either bemusement or amusement at times, a temple yeah, your temple like halves of a pomegranate and your neck like the Tower of Lebanon and all this. It just seems strange. Yet, if we could translate ourselves, as it were, to that culture and submerge ourselves in its thought forms, I think we would rapidly agree with it that beauty is special. It is alluring. There's an otherworldly character about true beauty. There's an author who even says that a beautiful woman is proof positive that God exists. I can't say I think that's entirely 
true. I know kind of what he means. There is this sort of otherworldly character to beauty that defies explanation and cannot be reduced to an evolutionary hypothesis about an intuition regarding the procreative health of the individual. By the way, I'm not saying there's nothing to that, of course. I'm just saying that's not enough to that. Cannot be reduced to that. There's more to beauty than that, surely. What could be more beautiful than beauty? Well, a lot of things, of course. Or in time to come, at least. Beauty is fading, my friends. Beauty is here today and gone tomorrow. Beauty may be ethereal, sort of atmospheric. But as ethereal, it's certainly not permanent. It's like a ripple in the pool or a light briefly shone whose source lies beyond the recipient of the divine gift, whose source is God. Perhaps you never considered that beauty is a sort of attribute of God, but in a sense, it is all of His more traditional attributes combined. Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing I desire is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He has perfect harmony in His perfections, His love, His power, His holiness. They're all formed together exquisitely. And our physical beauty is a taste only satisfied when it reaches for Him. What could be more beautiful than a beautiful bride? Beauty itself, found in God Himself. The things of earth will grow strangely dim as you gaze upon the light of His glory and grace. Or perhaps you are a Christian here this morning. What I would urge you to do is, would you gaze upon God in the splendor of His holiness? Perhaps that feels like a hard thing for you to do in this large church here. Maybe one of our small groups that Pastor Lee is leading a a sort of emphasis for us on at the moment. You can get involved there to, to gaze upon God in the splendor of His holiness. You may not have been graced with physical beauty. You may once and no longer. You might not have a bride or a groom to admire. But you can have God. If you seek Him and fulfill that chief end of man to glorify Him, you will enjoy Him forever. And that will be far more satisfying For it is the source of beauty. It is what beauty is about. It is beauty, not just a reflection of beauty. Well, third and final comparison. What could be more satisfying than what chapter 5 verse 1 is talking about? I can hear you turning to that verse now. And if you don't know what chapter 5, verse 1 is talking about, mercifully, it's not my job to tell you. 
I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered the spices. I've eaten the honeycomb and honey. I've drunk the wine. I'm drunk with the wine of love. If you're not sure what that means, ask your mum or dad or appropriate teacher in the appropriate birds and bees class. Now, it is not my job to explain the facts of life. Mercifully, I'm a preacher of the gospel. I do rather like Luther's comment on it, though, Martin Luther. He said, the reproduction of mankind is a great marvel and mystery. Had God consulted me on the matter, I should have advised him to continue the generation of the species by fashioning them of clay. Now, that is a little prurient, to be honest, a little, well, if not prudish, at least prurient. It, it's, 5 verse 1 is not about reproduction. It's about satisfaction. I can't explain that to you. This part of life is fully Genesis chapter 2 where within biblical bounds of marriage, we are able to enjoy God's good gifts, to thank Him for 5 verse 1. Now, this verse is a rebuke to many, a stoic or dualist view of the human body, whether the physical is somehow bad and the sort of vague spiritual good. No, not at all. No. As Paul says to Timothy in the context of predicting that some super spiritual people will forbid marriage at some point in the future. Uh, celibacy is a gift, but we're not to force it on anyone, Paul seems to make clear. Paul says, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. And he tells Timothy to point this out to the people as a good minister of Christ Jesus. And so I point out to you 5 verse 1. Go to it, husband. Go to it, wife. Sex in marriage is good and to be enjoyed. But you also have to notice verse 2 and on which is more a part of our passage next week, but it's a crucial part of understanding this verse because right after the satisfaction of verse 1 comes a sort of series of, of dreamlike dissatisfactions and longings of verse 2 and on. So verse 6, I looked for him but did not find him. In other words, verse 1 does not satisfy, cannot satisfy, is not meant ultimately to satisfy Quickly, the lover is in a sort of dream sequence in, in imagination outside among the watchmen searching for meaning and consummation and satisfaction and not finding it. I looked. I couldn't find him. And so what could be more satisfying than 5 verse 1? Well, if you listen to the wisdom of ages before the sexual revolution of the 1960s, lots of things. You see, even at its best, this is intended to point to a better communion, a better consummation, an eternal vision of a wedding night whose bliss will not end. 
I cannot do better than read from Revelation chapter 19 to explain this point the Bible makes. And that's really the answer to all frustrations and inadequacies, whether single, married, widow, or anywhere in between in transition states. Revelation 19 verse 6 goes like this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. That's loud. (laughs) Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That is the answer to this. And what is for believers far more satisfying and what really completes this. Even the best version of this. And what that means is, if you get to heaven, never having had chapter 5, verse 1, you will not have missed out. That's really about something else. If you have 5, verse 1, but never get to heaven, you would have touched, but never tasted And you have death satisfaction forever, to put it mildly. What could be better than 5 verse 1? God, heaven, Jesus, the wedding feast. What could be happier than the wedding, becoming a Christian? What could be more beautiful than a beautiful bride? God himself, to gaze upon God in the splendor of his holiness. And you think that's kind of pious nonsense? You have no idea of the glory of God revealed in his word, shown at the cross in Christ Jesus. What could be more satisfying than 5 verse 1? The eternal glory of God himself forever and ever. You are not missing out if you never have this. If you have Jesus. Song of Songs, a provocative gospel. And how in our pleasure-obsessed culture we need to hear that Christians are not missing out and that non-Christians, those who don't follow this pattern, it's not because they want too much pleasure. It's because they don't want enough. Our trouble as people is not that our desires are too strong, it's that they are too weak. We want dust when diamonds are on offer. C.S. Lewis has some famous reflections along these lines in a number of places. Here's one. He, He wrote this, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. 
the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what could be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something that we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. And the hotels and scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. Perhaps C.S. Lewis read Song of Songs in the book of Revelation. I think he did. Key lost, found in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, there are people here probably thinking this is a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo doesn't really help me in my situation. Who is that guy who's happily married to talk about the fulfillment in heaven in relationship with Christ when he has his happy, loving wife? Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would grant all such folk the ability to see through my eyes the marriages that struggle because they make each other the ultimate and the happy marriages that have the secret that Christ and his love for the church is what they're really about and point to him and focus upon him and find their dissatisfactions with each other fulfilled in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would renew our holy marriages, that you would give us a sense of joy and intimacy with each other. And I pray, Father, that your gospel would go forward this morning in great power in the hearts of everyone here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.